0: Welcome, Assalamu alaikum. Hi everyone, my name is Saqib Safta, I'm your host. In this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Eric Winkle on the Fatuhat al Makiyah of Ibn Arabi. Dr. Eric Winkle, or Sidi Shoaib as I often call him, is an Akbarian scholar. He's been studying the Fatuhat al Makiyah for over 23 years, and since 2012 he's been involved in this mammoth task of Translating the whole of the Fatuhat into English for listeners who might be new to Ibn Arabi uh, God willing this will be the first of many podcasts we'll be doing to explore the Sheikh Al-Akbar and uh, the Fatuhat Al-Makiyah is one of his major works it's about 10,000 pages long it is uh, as Ibn Arabi claims um, not from himself directly but everything was given to him in a mystical experience at the Kaaba where he encountered a silent youth who imparted everything that he later penned down uh, in this book. So we'll be exploring a couple of things with Dr. Eric Winkul. Firstly his own journey to Islam and um, how he came about studying Ibn Arabi, um, what the recommended approach is for studying um, the Sheikh al- Akbar And uh, Dr. Winkle is also an author of a book called Islam and the Living Law. So I'll be asking about Akbarian fiqh and how Ibn Arabi reconciled earlier legal positions. I'll also be asking him about mathematical symbolism. So while Dr. Winkle was a senior research fellow at the Institute of Advanced Islamic Studies in Malaysia, he explored how uh, certain passages from the Futuhat al-Makkiyah have in fact parallels with mathematics and physics developed after the 19th century. So the transcript for this interview is available on our website thehikmaproject.com. Do subscribe to our newsletter to be kept up to date with projects and developments um, for this coming year. And without further ado, here's the podcast. Wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you. So if we can maybe begin with uh just a bit about your own journey, how is it that you came uh to be involved in studying Ibn Arabi? Yeah, well
1: the uh the first Book I guess I wrote I I, I was reading was the Ralph Austin's uh, Sufis of Andalusia, and I was in I guess the late teenage years, and very interested in reading Foucault and all these other postmodern poststructuralist kind of re- uh, writers, and what I liked about them so much was that they were challenging the conventional view of the world, and of course as a seeker as as you are and, and, and others. Uh, are that are listening? Seekers are—they're always finding out that they don't really belong uh, in the in this place, and that the way people think, uh, they think that's just not enough. They're really seeking for something else. So I was I was drawn to them to try to understand how the world really is, uh, what's happening behind the curtains. And so when I came across Sufis of Andalusia, and I read about this person who was talking about these souls and saints. Who are so far beyond the boundary of the intellect and are so far outside of convention, um, I knew that there was something special going on. And so, throughout the years since then, I've always been looking for uh, ideas coming from the Ibn Arabi tradition. And uh, the the idea also is that um, what's what's so what's so beautiful is that you know I'd always been reading. So, you know, throughout many religions and throughout many cultures and languages, I, I studied many languages over the years, and I was I kept looking for you know someone who could answer my questions. And uh, when I came across these writers, you know, I would I would often get very excited about them, and then I would say at one point I would see my heroes had clay feet, and that they were not <laughs> that they had that they had just seen things that i thought oh my goodness even i know that that's not right you know about about women about uh people of other religions and things like that and i would just say oh my goodness and uh i've never had that experience with ibn Arabi so it's so what's so beautiful is that every time i dive into the ibn Arabi uh, writings um i never come to a place where i say you know oh i know that and he doesn't know it's always what does he know and and uh it's so so It's so reassuring and comforting to read Ibn Arabi because uh, he really sees how things are and he's full of mercy and goodness and kindness. And so when I I came across him and then began to dive in, I, in a sense, I did what he says, I read no other books. (laughs) So once I began reading the Futuhat, I, in a sense, don't read any other books.
0: Well, wow. so just to be clear, at this time when you started uh, uh, exploring his work, was this from a religious perspective, an agnostic perspective mm. uh, from the Islamic perspective mm.
1: well in in those years uh, I was pretty much very much eclectic, and so you know. And when I got to college, I would uh, I would sort of hang out with with one one religion on Thursday and uh, another religion on Friday, and then Saturday Shabbat and hang out with the Jews on Saturday, Sunday with the Christians and the Catholics, and so and so. I was really uh, able to to be in all the different religious expressions. And so when I read Ibn Arabi, uh, it was as someone who is. Uh, T- talking of universal Islam, so this was the the Islam that that doesn't really go by name because it's found everywhere, and Ibn Arabi himself is he doesn't he doesn't have a, a named way of of doing things. He doesn't have a, a spiritual path that is named, but it's in all of the spiritual paths.
0: Wow. Um, so you mentioned Austin and. Uh, I'm sure readers are aware, they are various translations from Chittig to James Morris to Chodkovich. Who would you say has been your greatest influence?
1: Well, I've certainly read, read, read all, all of them and it's so important to read everyone. Um, what we see is that, that the text itself opens up in many different levels and many different facets. And so in a sense, the way you you yourself see the world, that's how you translate Ibn Arabi. And so most of the people who have translated have been very much in the, the philosophical tradition, uh, intellectual Islamic tradition. And so they see that, um, and in a sense, they trans- transmit uh, Ibn Arabi's teaching through their language, their, their way of, of looking at the world. And, uh, and so when I was doing my own translations, and coming across things, I would often find that mathematical and physics, uh, these, these, another way of looking at these things that when you understand his numbers and letters in a, in a geometrical way, that all, all sorts of other openings began to occur. And so um, it's so important to see everyone's translations because they're coming from their own you know, solid foundation uh, in philosophy or wherever it is. Um, and if you'll see my translation, you'll probably you'll you'll see, in a sense, you'll see who I am also how I approach things. And of course, I'm. You'll see that's very, in a sense, anti-intellectual, uh, even anti-philosophical. Um, and so that's and that's what I bring to that. Um, so it's it's good to be able to see all of these translations uh, because what Ibn Arabi is doing, he's not writing from his own uh, limited Personality or his own limited view of the world. He really is uh, dipping into the source, and so when you dip in the source, everyone who reads you listens to you. They will also find truths that even the person speaking might not have known about. So, so that's why we're we're discovering things. I mean, if you just think about his writing, he he is addressing people, and they're usually a very small circle, and the small circle you know would would go with him throughout the the world with him and they would write down whatever he was saying and it's just so clear that as he is writing and reading his work in the futuhat you the audience must have been saying what the heck is this going what's he saying because it is just it's just so far beyond anything he all of a sudden he'll start saying And this is a treasure trove which has a lock which has 13 uh, wheels that turn and 160 of them go this way and they go that way. And people are saying, what is he talking about? So in a sense, he knows he is writing for the future for people who will come at some point in in the the history of of humankind and will find things that the immediate audience probably would not have understood.
0: (laughs) So having read some Ibn Arabi myself, I know he's an absolute genius and master of etymology mm. and has, is able to extrapolate the highest level of metaphysical esoteric meaning from the subtlest mm. grammatical mm. nuance or word uh, you know, uh, uh, permutations of meanings in the Arabic, in the triliteral mm. root and never uh, is satisfied with a fixed meaning of a word. Uh, but is able to almost open a word to its multiple variations of sound meanings, uh, mm. as he talks about in the Quran, for um, ha- having multiple levels of meaning within verses. Right. What difference did it make when you started reading him in 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 Arabic? Mm.
1: Yeah, this this is uh, I've been I've been sort of watching. Watching over the years, and and I've had feedback over the years about um, the the way I the way I read read the Futuhat and and the and the Quran, and what it turns out is that I've never been able to uh, speak Arabic, contemporary Arabic. And if someone speaks Arabic to me, I don't understand what's going on. Uh, what I understand and what I'm immersed in, you know, ten hours a day is the Arabic, the Arabi of the Futuhat. And so, what that what what that does is it has freed me to be able to see all of the facets that he's bringing out based on words. And so, and as you say that these these three letter roots, uh, they they have a semantic field. And you, when you're approaching the Futuhat, and when he's approaching the Quran, you have to see all of those that entire semantic field open in front of you. And you can't say it only means this or it only means that, um, and so that kind of, of, of process has really helped me. I think see things very fresh uh, because I don't have uh, this the Arabic language background, and I'm I can speak other languages, you know. And so why? But why don't I speak Arabic? It's, it's always it's been a question, and people have told me. Uh, you know, someone said I just come from Damascus, and I'm going to tell you that you're not going to be able to speak Arabic. Because you have to be able to read the Arabi of the Futuhat, and that's and that is quite different.
0: Well, wow. so if you've got somebody who's keen to uh, follow suit and and maybe learn classical Arabic, or maybe we've got listeners who are already learning Arabic but are not quite there yet to read uh, uh, Ibn Arabi which in, in my humble experience it, it, he's also very difficult for native Arabs, uh, Arab right. speakers uh, including uh, teachers of Arabic uh, often right. when I've uh, uh, queried passages from Ibn Arabi it's like keep away you know we, the, the depth of this is just you know beyond us mm-hmm. um, so so what, what advice I mean how did you go about learning this uh, lovely language to, to that level where you can then access Ibn Arabi
1: yeah, yeah it, it really is, uh, you know, I, I have such great admiration for the, the lexicographers, the people who made dictionaries over the centuries. See, right from the very beginning, uh, the Muslims understood that the Arabic language, the language of Quran, is a language that ended with the passing of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that whatever whatever happened to the language afterwards has no reflection on what the Arabi means. And so they knew that they had to go back to find the original Arabic. And so they were going to the Bedouin and different peoples and asking them what the meaning of something was. And one fact, one of the, um, the, the Hadith transmitters is saying that I never knew what Fatir meant until I saw two Bedouin, they were arguing over who dug the hole for the well. So the one who dug the hole said, I am the fatir of it. I am the opener of it, the beginner of it. And so they realized that to understand a word like fathir in the Quran, they were going to have to know what the Arabs that it was sent to, what they understood from that. And so, so I've always gone to the, the, these classical dictionaries, lexicons, um, and at one moment, I realized I began to realize that um, the Taj al-urus, uh, the the the, uh, the dictionary Taj al-urus, uh, it was it was giving the words themselves held the secrets that Ibn Arabi was talking about. So inside the word itself was the secret that Ibn Arabi was describing to us. And then I realized also that the the author of Taj al-urus saw himself in the lineage of Ibn Arabi. He connected to the lineage of Ibn Arabi. So he was very much propagating and transmitting and conveying the Futuhat through this dictionary, through the language itself.
0: Wow. Um, So talking about translations, before we sort of dive into that, um, just a couple of points maybe about The different versions of the Arabic of the Fatuhat, I know there's Osman Yahya, the Beiruti and Mansoub in Yemen, uh, who appeared in the In Search of Muhyiddin documentary and was talking about uh, the need to standardize the various uh, versions of the Fatuhat. Could you could you tell us about the di- the ver- the differences in in these and which one is accepted as the standard text or at least mm-hmm. in the academic intellectual circles and and which one is it you use and why?
1: Right. Yeah. The um the the critical edition that uh, that uh, Abdulaziz Sultan Al Mansub in Sanaa Yemen, uh, the one he created and and prepared was eleven years in the making. So he he took eleven years and he looked at the handwritten uh, manuscripts that were available in, in Turkey. And he used this these three uh, manuscripts to come up with the critical edition, the, 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 the one that, that we have that he's now published in um, in 12, 12 volumes. And it's uh, it's just a beautiful piece of work. He, he's done an amazing, amazing job with it. Uh, just as when you read a translator, you begin to know who the translator is, what their personality is like and so on. I really feel that, you know, immersed 10 hours a day in the futuhat, I really begin to understand who this person is in Sana'a. And we've communicated uh, now and then, he's a wonderful, wonderful person. Um, And he's just, he's the one person, I think over hundreds of years, the one person who understands the futuhat. And he understands it because he sees the entire work in front of him. And so I would, I would, as I was beginning my translation, I would write to him and say, you know, how, how come this is Qadam instead of Qidam? And, uh, you know, Uthman Yahya says this and, and, and that, and he would write back in the most generous and, and polite and so, so beautiful manner. He's saying, well, if you read six pages in front, You'll see that this is a reference to the Quran and Yusuf, and then therefore the word is qidam and not qadam. <laughs> and after the third time, I wrote to him and I said, Please give me the answer to this question. I'm not going to doubt you anymore. <laughs> and so what it meant is that every time I come to something that can't that just feels it can't be moved, it's just can't be understood. Uh, you know, what people will do is I'll say, they'll well, let's vocalize it this way. Or maybe it's a mistranscription. And so they make something up and then they go on. And I've said every time I come to somewhere I don't understand, I will stay with it until I understand it. And knowing that uh that Abdulaziz Mansub has gone through this and he knows it's he knows all of it, uh, that tells me to sit patiently until I understand and not try to mangle the word with the vo- different vocalization that makes sense to me. Um, so it's been such a teaching to have that. Now, Usman Yahya's critical edition, uh, he died uh, uh, just after, I think, completing the 14th book. Uh, he was in Sorbonne in Paris, and uh, his is very, very good, but he also, um, his critical apparatus that, you know, the footnotes are very, very big, and they're, in a sense, many of them are not quite necessary. So because in one of the manuscripts they might use a hamsa and another manuscript they'll just have the aleph and assume that you know that the hamsa comes later. And so you don't really need to keep telling us that each stage of the way. Um, but having said that, it is, it is a perfect critical addition to, the, to book 14. And what uh, Sidney Mansub has done is he's made that critical edition all the way to the 37 books. Uh, now he's very clear that the electronic versions are quite horrible. there are been about 50,000 serious mistakes in the electronic versions. Um, and so when, and so he's, he's in his introduction to his critical edition, you know, he says that Osma Yahya did a wonderful job. Uh, it might have been more information than we need, uh, but then then when he gets to uh, Bulak edition that, uh, that he says this one, you know has has problems. The Beirut one has problems. Any of these uh, electronic or or digital versions are are quite uh, quite horrible with their fifty thousand at least uh, serious errors. So we really do need to go back to uh, his critical edition. And uh, and if you, if you can't find his critical edition right now, Osman Yahya's fourteen books are on uh, you can download them from the web in PDF form.
0: Fantastic. And can I, could you just say something about the Futuhat project that you were involved in? Which book are you up to now? And why the Futuhat? Why not say the Fasus or the Terjuman or Lashwak?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, somehow I've, I've always been drawn to the Futuhat. And, um, and one of the reasons it's so important, I think, <clears throat> is that the Futuhat is written for, everyone and uh, he does say that you know he, he somewhat cautious in certain areas he's saying because the book may land in someone's hands and it's not for them so he is somewhat cautious but he's on the almost always he's actually just saying learn this please understand this he is so encouraging um, people don't necessarily realize that each chapter starts with learn learn. And he wants us to learn this. This is not esoteric knowledge that he doesn't want people to know, or only secrets, or only only qualified people can read this. He wants us all to learn this. He wants us all to learn this, because he has been told by Huck, by the true, he has been told to counsel the creatures, the slaves of Huck. And so that's his job that's his life mission is to counsel us and so he wants us to understand he wants us to learn uh and to love muhammad to love the quran and to and to want to uh, find ways to get closer and closer to allah to god and so that's that's a non-esoteric program he wants us to do this now in the Futuhat project so i've always been drawn to the Futuhat, and uh The project was I had to use the word project because, of course, this is such a massive undertaking, at least 10,000 pages in the in the original. Um, My translation will end up being 12 or 13,000 pages. Um, It's just a massive, massive situation. And it is it's so interesting that it's always even though know, I, I see myself as sometimes I'm quite alone in this in the beginning, but it was always, there's so much support coming uh, from, from the very beginning. And the first support was when uh, Stephen Hurtenstein said, you know, there's a critical edition coming from Yemen. Why don't you talk to that person? So I wrote to Abdulaziz uh, Sultan Mansoub, and I said that I really want to translate this work, and I, I've heard about his critical edition. So he sent me the critical edition uh, to Malaysia, and I took that, um, and then I left my work in Malaysia and came back with that critical edition and just dived in. And then um, over the years, just been working with this. And then a few years ago, uh, someone wrote to me, an Irishman living in France, and he wrote to me and said, Would you like help editing? Which is also a very polite way of saying, Do you need some help? And I said, Yes, I do. And so he uh, has become the editor. And what's amazing is that he also sees the Futuhat in as a, as a whole. And so when it, and I do something in one place, he'll say, you know, in another page, you're doing this differently. You know, are these the same? If they are, connect them. If they're not, describe where they're not connected. And so that kind of ability to see this whole picture has been so helpful. So what I've, all my writing gets up to this level. And then he comes in And he works with it until it becomes, you know, a, a truly high level. And it's also so true that no one person can can do this. And it really does require this team, it, re, it re really requires people with different uh, perspectives and abilities to come together and make this all work. And that's also then happened in the material realm, where I've had so much support in the material realm that, you know, what does it need for you to keep translating? What do you need for this editor? What do you need to get these books printed? And so. So that's been coming. And it's just such a, you really, I I really can feel that in the Barzakh, over there somewhere, uh, it's all been put together. And now it's slowly coming down into this world. And I'm watching it unfolding with great uh, joy and and thankfulness that this is all happening, uh, that it's unfolding now. And that it really is because of so many people who have said this is valuable work and have come to help. Uh, linguistically, editorially, uh, materially, all these different ways.
0: Oh, sure. Enough. Amazing. So um, just going on to the, um, you mentioned earlier, the ge- geometry and the, the style of translation. And I, I remember seeing, um, I believe it was the book of fasting, where you had a, a diagram diagram. Um, mm-hmm with an asymptote uh, for, for mm-hmm. those listeners who might not be from a mathematical background is uh, a vertical line that the curve never touches. Um, mm-hmm. And then you had a sort of curve going up. Uh, and my, my background is in math. So for me, it was, it was fascinating to associate that with uh, fasting. Um, could you say something about that? The geometry and the mm-hmm. uh, metaphysics of fasting and, and Ibn Arabi, I guess, in general?
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's look at the the two bow lengths uh, because that's that's always been very interesting, and that's also the idea of of these two arcs, and that they that something happens when they begin to approach each other, and so if you imagine now, uh, you know, a regular uh, recurve bow, you know, bow and arrow. So take a bow and and put one on top, and then it's like a like an upside down U shape, and then have a line and that's like the ground. And then below that, the same shape, another recurved bow, but this time like a U shape. So so you see a, a, a bow on top and a bow on the bottom. And the line in between is let's say the bow string. So the bow string here is going to be the membrane, the barzakh, so the membrane. And what happens is that when these two bows, begin to flatten and, and the handles, the two handles come closer and closer to the middle, then s- you see that the recurve bow will stretch out flatter and flatter. And as it stretch out flatter and flatter, it becomes longer. So the string becomes longer. And so the string, the membrane becomes thin. It thins out. And this is the experience of when you come close to the other side, Uh, There are places where that string or that membrane is very thin. And these are are when you are uh, feeding the poor, when you're visiting the sick, when you are uh, approaching God with extra devotions, when you are being born and when you're dying, or when you're at someone's deathbed or at someone's birth. Those are the time when that string is stretched very, very thin. And so the other side becomes so very close. Now think about these two bows as the handles are coming closer. We said when I love my abd, my slave, I, I come. the slave comes to me walking and I come at twice that speed. Or the slave approaches me a hand span and I approach an arm span. And so we have these two bows. Our bow, my bow, is slowly coming towards the middle with the handle and the divine bow is coming very quickly at double speed towards me. And when they—and when these two are almost touching, the bowstring is so thin, the membrane is so thin, I begin to not know who I am and who Allah is, who God is and who I am. And so that's why all the poetry comes says, Ibn Arabi has, Allah says, do this. And then Ibn Arabi says, who did you just talk to? And Allah says, I talked to you. And he says, but I can't see anyone but you. And therefore, who is you and who is I? <laughs> it gets all confusing. But this is, so this is when getting to two bowlings it's, it, I only could see it. Uh, I could only, I heard the English, I heard the Arabic and I heard the words, but I could not understand what's really going on till I could see the mechanics. And the mechanics are this, geometrical, mathematical reality, when two curves are brought closer and closer together, they are, and the curve is approaching straightness, approaching infinite, the infinite, and the other curve is approaching infinite, and so you begin to see that we are in, we are getting closer and closer and closer, but like the two oceans, they will not go, one will not go over the other. So I will not jump into the other side. And Allah will not jump into this side. But Allah will look at this membrane, and the image that's seen will be me. And so and so this is the way the two sides communicate. And uh, and so and so this then then that tells you, so why, so that's why. Allah says, when I love the slave or when I love the abd, I become the ear of that that slave, which is hearing. And so that hearing is then is no longer me because my bow has straightened up and is flattened out to the membrane. And so there is no intermediary. There's nothing between Allah acting, Allah acting and Allah acting in me. And then Allah acting in me is acting from behind me. And so khalifa, khalifa means min half, from behind. So the khalifa is the one that Allah is acting from behind. So when this, the other side, the, the divine side wants to do something, the divine side makes one of these bows, you and me, do that thing. And then we are doing what Allah wants to be done, and so we are then the Khalifa behind whom Allah is acting.
0: Wow. So, as I understand the the non-duality of reality which Ibn Arabi plays on um, through the etymology of words, I believe Michael Selves has written something um, quite spectacular about this which he calls a meaning event where the pronoun in Arabic can technically refer to um, uh, both divine reality and human and um, therefore open up various possibilities to uh, meanings which he never excludes um, what, what how would you summarize the um, the difficulty with translating, Ibn Arabi in that sense, given that he himself says, for example, the Quran uh, is is not fixed in meaning, but there are multiple um, levels or multiple variations or permutations rather of meaning Mm -hmm. in then translating his work, surely he then does he use that in in his own sort of writings where his own writings are open to multiple levels of meaning, Mm -hmm. uh, given the permutations of words. And and what's the pedagogy? He's he's so when he says et and and to learn, what's what's the pedagogy he's advocating? So if he was alive today, would he be content with his work being studied in a say university course, uh, or is he advocating um, a super rational, higher cognitive sort of engagement with his text as a spiritual text? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the the multiple uh, the facets that that come out. Um, let's let's look at. I should have written that down. Also, I just it just flew out. It'll it might come back. But the I what Ibn Arabi does with the so how to read his own writing. Um, what I what I recently I've I've been working with the, some colleagues. Uh, they've wanted to you know sort of. Translate directly uh, from a, from one of the chapters, um, and so we 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 open up. I've sent everyone the critical edition, uh, that passage. We open it up and we read the Arabic. We read we we go through and and, and do the translation. And one of the things that um, I've been told that 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 is a sort of an a, a quality of my translation is that I translate very carefully and precisely. Um, and so the, the translation that I have is one which doesn't uh, give my own ideas so much as it gives each of these words, and it puts the words in a certain order and a certain way. And the reason I, I, I've realized that I've been led to do that is because when I write, when I translate something, I might have one meaning or two meanings. And so but I have to make sure that I, write, I translate very carefully each of the words a certain way. And that is because when I find the third meaning or the fourth meaning, that sentence still has to survive. That sentence still has to be a place from which the third and fourth meaning can be understood. This, uh, I think sometime last year, I just had the you know, amazing opening and understanding of something, you know, some beautiful, beautiful insight. And I said, you know, oh, actually, that's in chapter two. There's something in the chapter two about that. And I realized, I said, and I said, I've only learned this now, but I wrote that translation a year ago. And so I wonder what it looks like. So I went to that chapter and I went to that passage and I read, ooh, even though I didn't know it, the insight I just got last week is in the sentence. The sentence holds that meaning. And so then I could realize that that this that, that as long as I don't define everything and push everything into uh, my understanding, but that I'm able to translate a certain way that years later and other people will be able to find things that I didn't even know were there. And so this is, this is really because the futulah is written from the source. And that's why I said, you can't define me in a school of thought uh, because uh, the pen will never get dry that's speaking about these things. And uh, this, this is his understanding of how the Qur'an is transmitted. The Qur'an, we think about the Qur'an as a, a group of, of pages with writing on it, and that that's the Qur'an, and that therefore we take this writing, and then we use grammar and dictionaries and hadith and tafsir and other ways of trying to find out what these words mean. Ibn Arabi says, and I'm all, we're going to be doing this, inshallah, in the 2021 uh, sessions that come up uh, starting, starting next Friday. These sessions, will be looking at the way he says you read the Qur'an. He says, you go to the place where the Qur'an was revealed, and you go there heart to heart with the Prophet ﷺ, and you see the transmission of Qur'an to the Prophet, to his heart, and you are right there with your heart. And then when you go back into sort of the real or regular world, you have something transmitted. And so you the words have not changed. It's still the same Arabic Quran words, but the meaning has changed because you've been to the site where that revelation was provided, was given as bestowed. And this is the way Ibn Arabi does things. And so in a sense, uh, when I see that Ibn Arabi has done something with the the two bows and that my imagery is the bow and arrow, then I can then say, how do I make sure that every time I write this, that that the person who is ready for that will hear what Ibn Arabi has seen by that. And he has seen those two bows coming closer and closer together. So I want to make sure that the translation uh, conveys what he's doing. And that's, in a sense, also tells me that the, what I am doing is not so much a translation as a conveyance or a conveying. Um, and this is his, I, his word, tarjuman or dragoman. So the dragoman or the Tarjuman is not translating, but is conveying. So if some, so I'm, in a sense, saying Ibn Arabi is here. He's telling me this Now, when he says it with these words, do I translate them into English this way, or do I say, you know, if I translate that way, people are not going to understand, and it's not going to be the way that uh, makes sense to our culture in our language right now. So what does he want to say in English? So my work is to say, what does Ipunadabhi say in English today, um, and not... Here are these Arabic words that I now translate into English.
0: So th- that brings us nicely onto a quote by Junaid, which I remember emailing you about uh, some time back. Um, and uh, I think it reads something along the lines of Kaala uh, Junaid. Um, let me just get the Arabic up. La yablagu darajal hatta yashhadu fihi alfi bi and um i i not sort of try and translate that um i'll i'll leave you to sort of expand on that uh if you wish but i uh, i know you i'm not sure if you if if it still stands but the, i think the discussion was uh sadik was translated as integrated ones and Zindiq uh as dualists mm-hmm. um and uh often Zindiq is uh, o- o- also translated as heretic or um, something along those lines and, and uh, Sadiq the sort of truthful or, um, uh, yeah the, the, uh, somebody who testifies um, so how, 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 why have you chosen those words and, and uh, what, what does Ibn Arabi mean by that anyway I think he recites it in the Fatuhat I think it's book 3 somewhere mm-hmm. um, Amazing Passions by Junaid um, mm-hmm. could you say something about that
1: yeah, well, the the, the the place I'm working on right, right now, chapter 276, I think, um, He's he begins to talk about that everything that we see from Allah never repeats. So this is back to the idea that the tajalli, the shining, radiant brilliance of, of God does not repeat. And no two people have the same vision and no one vision goes to two people and you will not get the same vision again, twice. And so in this passage, he just ends up with this last sentence here. So not one recognizes anything from the true except oneself. So it's not that, oh, I now know what God is like or what God is, I only know who I am. And so who know? but who recognizes oneself recognizes one's cherisher. Um, so all I know about the divine is what I am. So I can know myself, but I can't know God because that, that God then never ends, is infinite, uh, can't be fenced in, can't be defined, and so on. But so everything I know about the divine will be what I see in myself, and that will always then change. And so because it will always change, that everyone on the outside will say, but you said X yesterday and you're saying Y today and you're saying Z tomorrow, you know what's going on with that? And that's because there, there is never going to be a single fixed endpoint that say, okay, this is it, there's no more. And so because there's no more, the person who is integrated is going to be, is the one who knows of god only that we do not know and so this is that the perception of the inability no the the incapacity to perceive is perception so if i know that i'm unable to perceive god that's knowing god so it's uh it's a it's a negative it's an ever-changing and it's a not this not that so in sanskrit neti neti not this not that and so because it's not this, not that, the outsider says, oh, it looks like you're always changing, or you're a dualist, um, or it looks like you believe one thing, but then you say you believe the, the opposite also. And Ibn Arabi says with aqidah, that there are aqaid, they are belief systems. And each person has a belief system, because Allah is, is revealing to each person. And no two people will have the same belief system. And so because no people will have the same belief system, no people will have the same vision of Allah. This tells us that we only by convention say, okay, we'll agree on these certain things. But when it comes to the absolute truth, we must agree that we cannot know and we cannot confine and we cannot define. And so then this he ends up this paragraph with saying, so, so no one... So, not one recognizes anything of Haq except their self, themselves.
0: Wow. So, Sidi, could you say a bit more about why Ibn Arabi is controversial throughout time, not just within critics like Ibn Taymiyyah and others who launched some mm-hmm. severe attacks on him, uh, but also within some uh, Sufi circles, often it's uh, sometimes not encouraged to read Ibn Arabi uh, um, and, uh, or to have a teacher, and sometimes it's hard to get hold of a teacher who's sort of uh, an expert in Akbirian metaphysics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what are some of the things he, he's actually saying or suggesting uh, which um, causes people to um, encounter these problems of understanding him Mm
1: -hmm. yeah when when i was first starting the the translation sort of explicitly i was in malaysia and people would tell me that you know all of our teachers are 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 you know our spiritual teachers all say don't read ibn Arabi. (laughs) and and but as a positive way saying that it would it's too difficult not that it's it's not that it's heretical but that it is too difficult to read and uh and then I would always then I would say, you know, but look at this. We got a thousand pages talking about every tiny detail of the fiqh of the of Islamic legal system. We have an, a thousand pages saying, do you put your hands this way, this way, or that way when you're doing the salat? Uh, what constitutes a traveler when you're fasting? All of these, you know, all these detailed questions, and uh, and every time he comes to the disagreements among the scholars, he always says, "So go to the one that the majority say, you know, so go to the majority uh, that the hand of God is with the, the majority." All of these these statements. So I say, you know, that's he, all he's doing is saying, follow the Sharia and follow it even more carefully than you might otherwise have followed it. Follow it very carefully. So I wonder, so why is this, you know, something that uh, that is that people would say, don't read him because he's telling you to follow the Sharia and to follow it even more carefully than you ever would have followed before. And then I thought, and then I kind of think back that in a sense, they know what's really going on. And so, and they are reading Ibn Arabi very correctly. I'll give you two examples of how I began to see that. Years ago in Abiquiu, when we started doing a a dars of Ibn Arabi, uh, we went through one passage and and at the end you know it, you know some people were very confused and so one of the persons came up to my friend who's a uh, libyan you know arabic speaker and said you know what what was he saying in that last paragraph and the and the person said you know i have no idea but i loved it <laughs> so and then years later uh i think i was in delhi and uh, there was uh someone from yemen was doing a phd or something in one of the you know, very traditional Islamic uh, studies, Nizamiya studies, studies, and so I said, "Well, no, you're you're kind of a, like a neo-Wahhabi. Why don't you come talk with me? Let's talk about Ibn Arabi." And uh, so he said, "Okay." And I said, "Well, you know, we I've got the book with me. I've got footnote with me. Let's go over it, and you tell me what you guys, you know, what you guys don't like about Ibn Arabi." So we opened it up, and he went through, and he said, "You know, well." you know, that's a hadith, you know, yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's the Quran, and, and that's another hadith, that's another verse from Quran. And then in the end, he just frustratingly said, you know, I don't know why, but we hate him. <laughs> so, and I thought that's it, because Ibn Arabi comes across, and you love it if you love dipping into the source, and you hate it if you, because you realize that Ibn Arabi is saying that everything you think is going to be shaken and when you read the Quran and you think it means this, you're going to be shaken when you find out what, it, what truly is happening here. And every law that you do in Sharia, when you realize what's really going on, uh, you'll be shaken. And, 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 that's, and that is the case. Uh, Ibn Abi says, when you put your, your right arm over the left arm in the, in the prayer position, he says, well, the right arm is the right hand of God and you are the left arm and the right arm is holding up your left arm and so it's the picture is Allah as right hand protecting and preserving and holding you up because you're not capable to do all of this amazing thing called the intimate conversation of the salat so so he's talking about the right arm over the left arm but when you really know what's going on you say wow this is this is incredible he's saying that God himself is helping you prepare yourself to listen and converse with God himself in the Najwa, in this secret
0: conversation, which is the Salat. Wow. Sidi, so you mentioned earlier about the lineage of Ibn Arabi, and um, I know having read some Amir Abdul Qadir jazairi who uh, was, spiritually speaking, very close to his um, Akbarian master, Ibn Arabi, and he um was you know reading his um uh his sermons it's so evident how deeply steeped he was in akbarian metaphysics but at the same time as you said earlier there isn't any lineage of uh, as in spiritual tarika uh or system that explicitly comes from him, as as you have with Rumi, or as Mohiuddin Chishti, for example, or you know so forth. So, is there a spiritual um, lineage of Ibn Arabi um, that that seekers can sort of access, uh, and if so, how? Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's something
1: that we we've, we've been exploring in in the in these uh, the sessions on Zoom. Uh, the the futah.com, the, the futah.com. Uh, When you go there, you you can pick up the uh, the sessions that have been recorded. And the last two sections sessions, December eleventh to December eighteenth, have been the seal of Mohammedan sanctity. So this is the seal of Mohammedan sanctity, and Ibn Arabi is the one who is the seal. And what that means for us is that he is showing us that the light of Muhammad, the Nur Muhammadi, uh, which came down into the body of Muhammad Sallallahu in a time and a place that with his passing, the light of, of, of Muhammad, that Nur uh, became invisible, and then became visible in his lifetime, invisible again. And then in the last day, on the day of judgment, there'll be the uh, visible light again. And that light of Muhammad will be the one who intercedes for all of us, for all of humanity. So he w- says that he was given, uh, Muhammad was given uh, something that the other prophets and messengers were not given, and that's universal message. The message is universal, it's for all people. that he is the site on he is the master of the people all of them so everyone who has ever been born and whoever will be born is in the mother community of muhammad and he then is the universal uh, one to give this message of this light which is the message to perfect humanity which is all of humanity and so In the last two weeks, we began to explore what Ibn Arabi means by being the seal of that sanctity. And being the seal of that sanctity means that he is going to be speaking from a place of universality. And so it is universal. It's not in a particular language. It's not in a particular religion. It's not in a particular mode. It's universal. It's for everyone. And everyone who then inherits this light of Muhammad truth, whatever field they're in, whatever activity they are doing, they are inheritors of the seal of the sanctity of Ibn Arabi. So we should be looking for inheritors of Ibn Arabi, not necessarily in sort of Islamic studies um, or or in religious studies, but they will be uh, healers in psychology and they'll be engineers and they will be scientists and they will be mothers and they will be guides and they will be the ones who are working uh, to bring out the reality of the light to all of humanity so that's those are the inheritors of, of ibn arabi and so he's explicit in none and implicit or folded into all of them all of all of these ways all of these guidance all of these paths are ways that are infused uh, with this seal of sanctity, with Ibn Arabi's, uh, his, in his sealing, and which is the culmination of the light of Muhammad Sallallahu And so seal then becomes the word culmination in English. And so that is when all these things come together, and we see that they all are true. Uh, and, I, and again, back to geometry, I began to see this with, what's called now the Mubius strip, which is a, a, you take a strip of paper, you twist it once and connect them. And then when you go around that, that loop, when you go around that loop, you are inside, outside, and then the place that you mark as first is the place that is the last. So when you go around this loop, it's one surface. So there is only an inside, which is also the outside, which is also the inside. And what's interesting then, you take that one loop, one surface, and you cut it down the middle, you cut it as a cross section. Then what comes after that is a single loop with four sections, inside, outside, inside, outside. So that's, uh, so you come up with Zahir, Batin, Zahir, Batin. And so you come up with the invisible, the visible, the invisible, and the visible, and you realize that that is our life. We have in the Quran that we were before, we were nothing, so that so we were dead, we were nothing. So that's the invisible, and then we brought you to life, and that's then the visible, right where we are right now. And we will give you death again; and that will be the third part, and then you will have eternal life, and that's the fourth part. And the same way that the light of Muhammad starts out invisible before Adam Eve was a lump of clay. He was the prophet. And so that invisible light uh, reaches all the way until he's born. And then there's the visible uh, time of the light of Muhammad. And then when he passes, it's invisible again. And then on the day of judgment, He's then visible again as the master of the people, so I began to see that geometrically it shows us what is truly happening, Um, and so therefore, when you look back, the light of Muhammad is in all of these stars, and and you don't know that all these stars are the light of Muhammad until the culmination of prophecy takes place, and that's when. And yet, when he's born, you still don't know that these stars were were true and true lights, because now all you see is him. He's the sun. He's the solar Islam. He's the sun. And when you see the sun, all the stars have disappeared. But when he passes, then we get the moon and the, all of his imagery of the of Muhammad and the moon. And the sun behind the curtain of the earth is illuminating this moon. And the stars all are there. And then at that moment, only after he's passed, can we say he is the culmination of prophecy because all of these lights are his lights.
0: So, yes, you, I think this is touching on a really important point here. What one is the universality of Islam, uh, of of Ibn Arabi's message and his writings. And just to be clear, is he saying that um, the universality is? within the Islamic tradition itself, as in the Quran is explicitly or implicitly a universal text, or is he saying my teachings uh, or or this perspective is universal, uh, a a perspective within that universality, or is he saying the universal is within the the actual Islamic message by, 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 by nature is universal. And also, where where does he see uh perennial philosophy what would ibn arabi suggest um to the modern seeker that uh, a a new age approach or uh you know uh a, a non-islamic religious ap- approach is is completely uh valid or does he believe that the the islamic message through the prophet muhammad uh, superseded or, or put an end to uh, the various previous revelations which have been affirmed in, in the Quran or, or are there still valid means to salvation and um, knowing truth? Right, right.
1: Yeah, no, this is uh, in a way the same way that uh, when Rasulullah, when he's alive, that you hear, you hear mostly about what he is seeing in front of him. He's the sun. He's the one who is shining bright. And uh, it's when he passes away that you realize that these stars and the moon, that's all one light. And in a way, uh, when Ibn Arabi is talking, he's talking to his immediate audience is Muslim. And when he's and when he's talking that way, he's uh, if he's talking to me and saying I should do something, he's gonna say, follow the Sharia. He said, follow the Sharia as you have been taught by your grandparents or by the Muslim community or whatever it is. But when he, and so we have to, in a sense, read between the lines or read certain parts to find out, well, Ibn Arabi, how did you make that practical? How do you practically do that? And the way he did, one of the ways he did that, when he went to Greece, he went to people who he he thought were uh, sun worshipers and so uh, when he, he talks to one of their ulama, he calls them the ulama, one of the, the wise people, uh, the people who know. And uh, as any good Muslim, he says, what's wrong with you? You're worshiping the sun. Don't you know that God is one? And so, you know, and you, you can hear that that's kind of what Muslims do when we see idols and things like that. We say, what's wrong with you? Don't you know that God is one? And he gets the answer that, of course, we know God is one. Of course we have Tawheed. we know that God is one, but the sun is the closest image that we have to this life-giving divinity who gives us light and nourishment and feeds us and cherishes us. And so therefore we honor and respect the sun above all other uh, objects in creation. And Ibn Abi said he was happy with this answer and sat down and they ate together. So what's interesting at this point, Ibn Arabi did not say, here's a 600-page book manual on fiqh. (laughs) He did not give him a 600-page manual on fiqh. He did not say, oh, you should be a Shafi, or you should be a Hanafi, or you should be a Hanbali. He did not say, "Um, I want to hear you convert right now, and I want you to promise to follow Islam and all its details, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He said, I was happy with his answer. So Ibn Arabi is saying, when you find someone who can articulate for you the truth that they have, which is that God is one, and if they can articulate that truth for you, you honor that truth, and you say, you are pleased to hear that someone has that truth. And as to what goes next, uh, that's all depends on circumstances and situations. And uh, one of the first things that we learn when we study fiqh um and i think i think a friend of mine wrote this maybe on facebook or something and i don't know if he said that before but the fundamental principle of fiqh for the fuqaha is uh m-y-o-b mind your own business (laughs) because and ibn abi tells us when hajaj who who by all accounts was the most horrible oppressive leader the world has ever seen. He was murdering Muslims left and right. It was a horrible person and yet he was leading the prayer. So Ibn Arabi says, people at that time said, should we follow this person as the Imam when he's such a horrible person? And Ibn Arabi says, the answer is quite easy. I look at him and he has done his wudu, his ablutions, and he is saying Allahu Akbar and he is, he is leading the prayer correctly. What happened before to him in his past, what trauma he experienced, I don't know. And what Allah will do with him in the future, I don't know. So Allah might make him to be a wonderful person who helps everyone tomorrow. So what he does has done in the past, we don't know what happens to him in the future, we don't know, all we know is the present. And at the present moment, he did his ablution, he stood up correctly, we, he is the Imam for us. So Ibn Arabi is counseling us to be non-judgmental. We don't know what brought people to where they are and they do things and we don't know what traumas they've gone through. We don't know what hardships they've had. And we also don't know what's going to happen them tomorrow. Tomorrow they may be our, the one person who helps us when we fall. All we have is today, this one moment. And that moment is to say, don't, don't read a 600 page manual on fiqh during that moment. But really, be yourself, be who you are, and then I interact with you as you are in the present. Um, so this non-judgmental uh, state is so very, very important, and and that is how we we look at people and uh, we we interact with them, and we say in a non-judgmental way, how can I recognize the truth that you have been receiving, and we can converse with the truth that I have been receiving, and we can see our truths instead of argue about you know who's right who's wrong and whose doxology and whose dogmatic things are, are correct or not correct because that that sentence right here no one knows anything of the true except oneself
0: well wow. so Sidi um, along that along those lines with the fixed side would you say Ibn Arabi has his own School, uh, madhab, the Akbarian sort of madhab, uh, or is he affirming the four uh, Sunni schools and uh, uh, and and the Ja'fari school, and simply offering more perspective into that, or or would you say that there's an Akbarian school of religious law?
1: Yeah, yes, certainly. Uh, as the seal of Muhammadan sanctity, a seal, the culmination, he has to take. The 1000 pages of fiqh, uh, these are, let's, I don't, I, I, I wonder if someone has a number, uh, There are about 800, let's say 800 fiqh issues um, about uh, sitting down when you're drinking, standing up when you're drinking, um, putting your hands this way, putting your hands that way, wiping your arms past your elbow or up to your below the shoulder, there are maybe 800 positions. And so or 800 issues that have positions. And Ibn Arabi as the seal, as the culmination of this, of of Sharia, then has to be able to show us that every position is there, is possible, is available. So he has to show the universality of Sharia. And that means that the Sharia has to apply to every time and place. And so to show that it applies to every time and place, he looks to every single fiqh, issue and then gives his inside view of that his his inward view of all of that but he puts them all down so that you can see that he is sealing he is saying take all of these positions on whether i wipe up to the elbow to below the uh, shoulder or just below the elbow he takes all the positions shows how all of them are true and then seals them that's the culmination of them they are all true for instance, uh, someone who is a, 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 um, a woman who wears the hijab. She wears the hijab, that is true. She's not wearing the hijab, that's also true because there are many situations where you do not wear the hijab and there are situations where you do wear the hijab. And so it depends on the situation. Uh, who is leading the prayer? Someone leads the prayer who is the most in Quran. And then, but they also, you lead the prayer when you have been told, you're being taught how to lead the prayer. So someone who is less excellent will lead the prayer because the person who is most excellent is teaching them how to lead the prayer. So in other words, non-judgmental. because when I see someone leading the prayer, I can't say, is that the most person in the Quran or is that the most person in fiqh? or is that the most oldest person or the most male person or any of these other things? I can't know because I don't know what the situation is at that moment. But all of these positions are valid. And so if they're all valid, then he is the seal of them. He's the culmination of them. And so that makes, see, if we hold on to the sharia and the fiqh of the sharia that one imam had, and we go to New York or we go to Beijing, you know, I don't know if it's still going to apply. I don't know if it's going to be universal enough to handle a situation in 21st century New York or 21st century Beijing. But if you take Ibn Arabi's culmination of the fiqh, that one will work anywhere. It will work if you are in a Muslim country, in a non-Muslim country, if you're in the middle of being attacked for being a Muslim, or you're being loved because you're a Muslim, or if you're a man, if you're a woman, if you're a child, if you're an old person, if you're sick, if you're every single possible position uh, there is there, and you will have a position, and that will be your guidance and your way to the water. It'll be your your
0: sharia your way to the water so so if ibn arabi was physically alive today and he was in a room with um say a salafi who who took one very sort of uh uh one view shall we say and and then um a sort of mod, modern postmodern uh person who who was uh, say a controversial topic for example is um reducing the fasting hours or maybe female women-led prayers Mm uh would ibn arabi say they're both correct would he say one is correct or or they're both valid but then the the issue with the one perspective is is when one particular school either they're mutually exclusive so so one is saying the other one's not valid and then ibn arabi saying no you're both valid but then part of the problem is um is precisely that that Relative truth or a relative perspective is saying, dogmatically or otherwise, that that this is the correct opinion. So, how would Ibn Arabi reconcile something like women-led prayers, for example? Okay.
1: Yeah, the uh, in, in a sense, the, I I didn't know it then, but when I wrote the book called The Living Law, The Living Law, and that's available also online, I think The Living Law, and that's in a sense what you're asking. If Ibn Arabi is living today, what does he say? And what he says is there's, that there is no relativity and there is no uh, exclusivity either. Neither one of those, because there is the name, ism, the state, the hal, and the rule, the hokum. So once you know the name of something and you know its condition or state, hal, then the hokum is fixed, is known. It doesn't change. So the name has to be applied correctly. I have to say, am I sick? Am I a male? Am I this, am I that? And then I have to ask my how, what's my situation? Uh, and then then only then when I know my name and my situation, then the hukum the rule is fixed. That one never changes. So there is no relativistic thing. You can't say that the rule changes, the rule doesn't change. So let's say it's Friday afternoon, the call of prayer is, is, is there. I'm working in a country which does not respect Islam or respect Muslims. I lose my job if I go to the Friday prayer. If, I, if that is my particular situation as, as who I am, I am no longer a free man. Because a free man is the one who's able to go to the call, when the call of prayer is there, I'm able to walk out of my house and go to that, uh, to that place of prayer. If I'm not that, then I'm not a free man. So you need to give me another name, like slave because I'm not in charge of my my, my daily life. I, I can't lose this job. And no one will accept me if I, I can't go just run away and go to Friday prayers. If that's the case, if I'm a slave, then the, ru- the rule is very clear. Slave is not required to go to Friday prayers. And so um, if I'm in prison, I'm not required to go to Friday prayers. So I have to know my name, I have to know my state, and then the rule is a single rule, it's just, that's the way it is, Um, it doesn't change, so I don't have to say that Friday prayer, we need to loosen the rules, we don't need to loosen the rules, we just need to tighten the names, and so if I'm a woman who has uh, no kids, don't have to worry about anything, I'm completely independent, and I hear the call to prayer, then I'm actually in a state of the, of 1400 years ago of a man, because I'm independent. But if me as a man, am taking care of my child, and no one else can help me with my baby at that moment, and the Friday prayer is called, and I've got a little one year old, you know, you can't leave a little one year old. And so I am now have to take on the name mother, I am the mother, and the mother is not required to go to Friday prayers. And so when that call to prayer is called, I don't feel bad or guilty or anything. I'm a woman taking care of this child. I am not being called to go to Friday prayer. So what Ibn Arabi is doing for us is saying, find out who is being addressed. So listen carefully and find out, are you being addressed by this command? If you are, follow it completely. Don't bend anything. Don't make anything loose or flexible. Follow it completely. But first
0: find out, who is being addressed? Are you being addressed? Well, and Sidi, what does Ibn Arabi mean by, in his uh, perspective, uh, the transcendence and imminence, uh, the tanzi and Tashbi, of divine reality? How, how does that infuse his perspective and his works?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's I've been looking at that, I guess, over in, in these sessions, sort of in the mid-year, it's just absolutely fascinating because what, what we, we see happening is that people think that if I want to be really religious, really pious, then God has to be very transcendent. And so everything that's good and transcendent is God and everything that's low and immanent is me. And so there's yeah, this real divide. And uh, Ibn Abi is telling us that that is uh, actually not very, it's neither very helpful nor very polite. Um, it's, not, it's not the way to understand the divine. And we go back to the passage when he talks, and he, I think he has this twice in the Futuhat. Someone asks, uh, what is the most tremendous name of Allah? What is the most tremendous name of God? And the person throws a stone at him and says, you are the most tremendous name. What this says is that, all of these names, all of the things that we see around us are Allah doing something. There are divine names. And so um, they, they, are all div- they are all divine names. And if I want to say only the transcendent ones are divine, then I'm really only seeing half of the divine. And if I'm seeing half the divine, I'm really not even seeing the divine. And so we need to say that when Allah is going to give a force, so qahar, a force in this world, then that is the divine name, and, and to I have to appreciate it as the divine name, just the way I have to appreciate that your name is the most tremendous name of God, and so by doing that, that is the true honoring of Allah, because otherwise, I'm, in a sense, I'm saying that Allah is over there, and whenever he does something good that I like, and it seems very transcendent and very exalted, that's going to be God, and everything else is me, and that's, that's, that enters into shirk because it's saying that I'm a God, I'm just not as good a God as that God. And Allah is saying, no, there's only the one God. <laughs> and so and so, all of it, the high and the low is me. And the word jalal, so fascinating. Jalal, and Ibn Abi always plays with this. Jalal means two things. It means coarse, rough, hard, difficult. And it means easy, flexible, smooth, and loose so jalal has its own antonym has its own opposites so jalal is both this coarse hard rugged rough and this easy soft flexible and smooth and so right there we see that all of this is going to be the divine and that uh, it's it's my my seeking is to find allah in all of the all of the manifestations of the divine and not just the ones that I think are elevated or intellectual or, or, or um, you know transcendent. So that's why he loves to come on with the Hadith qudsi because Allah is, is amazed at the youth who shows no youthful folly and says, how can Allah be amazed at something if he knows everything? And I'd say, well, sit with that for a while, sit with the Hadith qudsi That's the one that will tell us that Allah is so close and so to see Allah being so close is the beginning of seeing the divine everywhere.
0: Sidi, you mentioned earlier that um, Ibn Arabi doesn't write from his own personal perspective uh, mm-hmm. necessarily. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he actually says everything was given to him. Um, you know, And so um, in the Fatuhat, um, I believe he 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 says he mentions a silent youth who uh, meets him in Mecca and uh, uh, a mysterious figure who who imparts the whole Fatah to him um, and then in the fasus at the very outset he he says this book is given to him by the Prophet peace be upon him um, and so there's nothing in the book from himself. Could you say something about that? Does that come across to you when you read Ibn Arabi?
1: Yes. So the, the Fusus, I mean, that's, it's so. Inter- I, I used to read it years and years ago, but uh, I haven't read it for, for decades now. Um, but when I do pick up and see someone says, oh, here's a sentence from the Fusus, then I'll look at that and I'll say, well, that's not the same style as the Futuhat at all. That's not written by the same person at all. And it doesn't mean it's not written by Ibn Arabi, it means it's not Ibn Arabi's way of writing because it was given to him, it was given to him. So the futahat is his way of writing, but what was was given to him is he went to that place which is etched in the the body of the youth. So etched it's photographic, you know, light written, written in light in the youth. So he reads that and then he writes in his own language. And his own way, what he uh, is seeing, and so you very much get this. You understand when you're reading the footnot, you understand who this person is. It's his, his language, his way of writing, his way of thinking. All of that is clear because he's looking at that, uh, that sight, in the youth, and then turning around and recording it in Arabic in the in the 13th century. And so, and so that's in a sense also. Well, that's how he tells us you read the Quran. You go to the site where the Quran was revealed, and then you understand why it came out in those words, and then you understand it in your own language as well. And so, Ibn Arabi's thought. You know, so so one of the things that people say oh, when you translate do you, uh, is each word translated the same way, and never it's never translated the same way um, because he's translating. He uses the words, but he, he means, you know, he means something uh, that has to come out in the English. In, like in English, we have sweat and perspire. So sweat is sort of an, uh, an, an English word and perspire is a French word. So, so we, uh, we have the culture where those sort of uh, Anglo words uh, like sweat are, uh, or Germanic words are sort of hard and rough. And the other words that are like coming from French are more feminine and sophisticated, and so on. So you, so if you have a word in Arabic, araq, you know, sweat. Do you say sweat or do you say perspire? So because I'm immersed in Ibn Arabi's writings, I know when he means sweat and when he means perspire, and I can't just use the same word. I have to know what does he, what's he trying to say? What does he want me to hear? And especially in the poetry, his imagery is so beautiful. He's in the poem that I'm reading right now. He's talking about qadr, which is like a muddiness, and rang, which is like the motes of particles in the mud. And I have to come up with the word that's going to explain when. So muddy is not the same as as soiled or polluted or 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 off. You know, muddy, this is not a bad thing. It just means that there are particles in there. So I need to find those words in English that are conveying what he's what he wants me to convey. And uh and then and that's why I'm begun to just love the poetry so much, because I hear hear him say that, and then I say, Well, not in English, if I say uh muddy do I have the idea of confounded in there, is the idea of of not being sullied, you know, bad, but just that everything's mixed up. And mixed up is different from confounding. So I I, I get to play with all of these words in English as well, to say, this is what he says when he speaks in English.
0: (laughs) Yasidi, I really feel we can go on all night here, uh, (laughs) and I'm mindful I've taken enough of your time already um uh, but, but with the intention inshallah to continue these conversations and maybe have a more focused one in the future about certain maybe a chapter or uh, a particular passage of the futuhat um mm-hmm. i just want to thank you so much for your time and uh for honoring us with your wisdom and insight of uh, reading ibn Arabi and sharing that with our listeners okay you
1: are
0: alhamdulillah Thank you. Cool, oh, was